Hey guys, sorry, this is a very awkward room. Hey guys over there. So I'll not see you for the rest of my presentation because it'll be, uh, I'll probably fall down. So uh, welcome, thank you for taking the time. I know we are standing between you and uh, beer. So um, we'll try to make, it, make this quick. This is about uh, architecting um, uh, a data lake with a bunch of different AWS services. Uh, my name is Abhishek, I'm a senior product manager on Amazon Athena. I've been with AWS for about five plus years now. Uh, we also have uh, the honor of having Rohan, who is from Atlassian, and, and Rohan's gonna talk about how Atlassian uh, uh, built their data lake uh, all the way from Sydney, so that's what, 26 hours of flight, yeah. Um, so the way this presentation is, is, is work is, we'll, what we'll try and do is we'll try and land this term, data lake, right? So, if you've been in the data industry for a while, we'll try and see what does this really mean and why are we talking about data links right now. Uh, so I'll try and land the term, and the way I'll try and do it is I'll try and tell you why we think when we talk to a lot of customers, they're talking about data lakes. Uh, I'll try and put together basic components of, of a data lake, and then we will show you a couple of examples. And these examples will grow in order of complexity. The first one is a really simple one that unifies real-time and batch data. Um, this is something that we've also put on a blog with a CloudFormation template, so after you kind of run through this, you can go to the blog, click the CloudFormation template, and it'll deploy the infrastructure required to build the data lake. And then we'll go on to a more complex, full-fledged data lake that Atlassian has, and we will kind of peer into their architecture. <coughs> so if you're thinking of sleeping through the presentation, right now is the best time, because it grows in complexity right now. So, um, so what are reasons people are talking about data lake? I think there's no doubt that there is an exponential growth in data uh, um, that is happening. So uh, what, we have, what we are seeing customers tell us is that they must capture data from different diverse data sources, uh, and they want to break down traditional silos, silos between relational or uh, old uh, databases and new technologies, SAP and uh, social data, or real-time feed coming from a B2C channel and your traditional data warehouses, so on and so forth. So I think this is nothing new. This has been happening for a while. But I think what has happened and what has changed in the recent time that there's now, there is a diversified set of customers for your data. Earlier it used to be an analyst which would write SQL, produce reports, and the reports would go to a, a wide variety of people that would look at the reports and make decisions based upon at what level in the organization they have. Now there are a lot more people. There are people who want to access this data via an API. They want to run a wide variety of tools. There are developers who want to run machine learning algorithms on this API. You want to do, um, uh, you want to do things like uh, build models on this uh, API. There's also data scientists that want to explore this data and, and find correlations that can be helpful to the business. And these are not traditional analysts. So the tools that they use are also quite different from the tools traditional uh, analysts have used. So this is creating a completely new way of looking, uh, of looking at data. So people are also asking us for different ways of accessing this data. So it used to be a BI tool or a SQL engine that was good enough for you to capture the data. Now it seems like we need that uh, they will, in an organization, and if you especially have a large organization, on one side of the spectrum you have developers who love nothing but an API, and on the other side of the spectrum you have uh, a business analyst who couldn't be bothered with even writing SQL. So, you know, and there's a wide variety of these people trying to access the same data. The commonality is 
that they do want to access data at every granularity is possible. So you will, like, if you are a data warehouse admin, you will constantly get requests that the granularity that you're aggregating the data right now is not good enough for me. Give me the rawest data format so that I can join and do something else on it. Or you will find people who will tell you that I run a Jupyter notebook and I want to access the raw data, or I run R, and I have a wide variety of tools. Then there's also applications that are built into automation platforms uh, that want to access this data via an API. There's also a lot of customers who are trying to expose this data to external customers uh, and allowing them to run uh, queries on this data, which is also a completely new way of exposing data. So I think this is what is kind of causing us to think about this data lake and to kind of break down silos. That doesn't mean the old traditional way of uh, take your data, ETL it, put it into a data warehouse, and put a BI tool on top of it doesn't work. It works fundamentally fine. Right, so if I think about characteristics of a big of a daily, these are the things that I think about. That you need to have an ability to collect everything. You need to have an ability to dive in anywhere. That means at any granularity. You need to have flexible access mechanisms. BI tools, Spark, ML algorithms, R, um, um, you know, all different types, raw access, API access. And you need to future-proof it, right? So, uh, about two years or five, six years ago, all machine learning we were doing through was all SaaS. Then you have R, then you have Spark, now you have MXNet, TensorFlow. And these technologies are gonna keep changing. And they're gonna keep coming with new and new ways of better improving these models. So you need to build a, a data lake in a way that it is future-proof and allows you to incorporate newer ways of accessing the data. We think S3 is a good place. It is one of the places that you can build a data lake. I don't think an, an, any engineer will tell you there is only one and one way of doing something. We think S3 is one of the ways of doing the, uh, doing the data lake. The reason we do that is we, when we talk to our customers who all want to build a data lake, one thing they all agree on is that S3 can be a great place for putting the data. They disagree on how they want to ingest the data. They disagree on how they want to access the data. Some might prefer a Redshift-like tool, some prefer Athena, some prefer to run clusters, uh, Hadoop clusters on top of EMR, some prefer to run instances uh, on top of this. So there are all variety of, uh, of things, and there is no uh, you know, commonality. But the only commonality we see is they all want to be able to use S3 as a data So I'm, what I'm talking about is uh, how to use S3 as a data All of this starts with a very simple architecture. So on the, and, uh, I think at the end of this presentation, not only will you be a master in data lake, but also in AWS icons. So remember that. So, but if you think about it, there are three buckets of what you need to build. You need to build an ingestion mechanism. You need have a, you have a staging area or a lake where you can put data. Let's say that's S3. You need to have processing mechanism and you need to have an ability to consume the data. There are lots of uh, ingestion tools like Kinesis, Direct Connect, Snowball, database migration tools, their third-party tools that will allow you to ingest data at different velocities and in different formats from different sources in a way that they can all land into S3. There are different ways of processing this data set, Athena, Redshift, uh, Elasticsearch, machine learning services, and then there are a wide variety of ways to access this data. Like You can take something like QuickSight, you can take something like analytic notebooks, also an API, stick an API on top of this, expose it to an external world, you have people building applications on this data. All right, but there are also a couple of other things that go and become a part of this architecture if you think about it. That's because 
data is not perfect. All of us, well, let me say data is never perfect. So you need ETL almost at any, uh, at any place. This could be a really small thing as you change the timestamp in a way that somebody is giving your data to a timestamp in which, let's say, a downstream query engine understands it. So there's lots of different tools on AWS that allow you to ETL the data. Some of them are serverless, some of them are full-fledged ways. Lambda will give you trigger-based code execution platform so that you can uh, ETL your data. You can also use AWS Glue, which is an event-based serverless engine. You can run PySpark on top of it. You can also run Spark and Hive on top of EMR. But all of these are doing very, very similar things. They're trying to clean, transform, concatenate, convert into better formats. They are doing transformations on this data sometimes even event-driven transformations on this data. But essentially what all these, these technologies do is they allow you to express this transformations as code, right? And Lambda Express allows you to do that. Spark allows you to do that. Glue allows you to do that. So you can express those transformations for code. And this can actually be littered all across your uh, you know, uh, engine, it, or all across your architecture. It can be right at the time when you're ingesting the data so that you put it in the right format in S3. It could be at a time when you have ETL the data, but you're now pushing this data into a format that it becomes consumable, right? So there's one thing that also I, we feel is, is common to all of these is the metadata, right? So I have all these different tools that I'm allowing, uh, that are ingestion tools that write data to S3. I have all these downstream query tools that read data from S3. But what I also need is a common metadata store so we released something called the AWS Glue Data Catalog, which is a common metadata store that allows you to catalog the data that you have in S3 and other JDBT sources like RDS and Redshift. So it becomes your common metadata store that allows you to search, get connection information, do classification of data, add business annotations to data, add versioning to data. It, it doesn't have any data, it just has metadata. But it allows all the downstream engines to have a central place where they understand what is this data in S3. And that allows you to use any of the engines uh, replaceably. We also introduced something called crawlers. So crawlers is a way for you to automatically catalog your data that is sitting in S3. We have built techniques that allow us to understand the schema of the data and automatically ingest tables uh, in, uh, in the catalog. It's very simple. It's based on something called classifiers, which are basically graph patterns that are run in an ordered fashion. And based upon what we think this data set is, we create a table uh, on the data set. Here's how it looks like. So if you can see uh, on the column that I marked, there's CSV data, data from Redshift, data from an RDS data source, data in Parquet. So the catalog is, is what it is, the catalog of all your data that is sitting in S3. So uh, for example, here you can look at table properties. You can add business annotations. You can add data statistics. Uh, to the table properties. We also can find things like a new version of the schema in the metadata catalog. And what you can do with the downstream engine like Redshift or Spark or uh, Athena depends upon how your data is actually structured. So some of this as to, is this a new version of the table? Can I actually handle this mutation? Will actually depend upon the downstream query engine that you use. For example, Redshift handles mutations really well. Athena doesn't handle mutations so well right now. So there are ways in which one tool will, uh, will be good at one thing and the other tool will not be good at that thing, but you can decide. But all of them can share the same metadata catalog, uh, the same permissioning model, and the same annotations, for example. 
So here's here's a version control. For example, this this gave me a newer version of the uh, of the table, and it gives me uh, how schemas can be evolved. We also do things like um, automatic partition detection. Uh, partitioning helps uh, downstream engines reduce the amount of data that they're querying, and thus making the query slightly faster. So go back to our diagram. So we have added the new uh, new icon to the diagram. It's a metadata metadata store. So if you think about it, a variety of ingestion tools that allow you to write data, a variety of, of tools to query data, but probably a single S3 meta, uh, a data store and a single catalog. So if you think about, uh, then there's also a need for doing real-time processing. And if you wanted to do real-time processing, there are tools there as well. For example, Kinesis. I mean, I don't like the term real-time. That's why I put the word in-stream, because you're actually processing the data in-stream instead of actually processing the data once it's stored on some kind of a data store. So something like uh, Spark Streaming or Flink on EMR or Kinesis Analytics can actually run SQL queries on a stream of data and give you real-time results of the data set. Right. So uh, now if you think about all of this, the only commonality that we see in all, uh, all of this is here's S3. S3 is a great place to store your data. And here's a metadata catalog. Everything else is replaceable by one engine or the other based upon your use case. So if you think about your data, uh, our data lake strategy, our data lake strategy use says, depending upon the way you are ingesting your data, use the source you want to. Uh, depending upon the tool that you want to use it at query, use the tool that you want to. But I think these two will unify your data architecture, the S3-based data lake and a data catalog. So if I go back to, whoops. If I go back to, um, you know, if you think about the data lake, and if you think about any of the things that I just said, they kind of all match within what we set out to, uh, to build in data lake. Now, let's take examples, and we'll do two examples here. We will run through an architecture. Let's say I'm an, I am an IoT uh, device provider. I have thermostats, and I want to send real-time thermostat information uh, to the cloud, and I want to get uh, real-time inefficiencies of thermostats. I also want to get uh, information about, uh, you know, the daily temperatures or averages. Uh, so I need real-time data. I need daily aggregations. I need hourly aggregations. How would I build a data lake on that? So that's the, our first example. And the second one is a much bigger one, which is what Rohan is going to talk about from an Atlassian's point of view. All right. So here's our here's our first example of. What we're, what we're trying to do with this example is land this concept of a data lake using some of the AWS pieces. So I have some sensors, and I'm, they produce record-level data. Now, what do I want to do with this? So I have a lot of business questions that I want to an answer from, that I want to ask this data. So like, what is going on with a specific sensor? Uh, so that's real-time, uh, that's granularity at a record level. I want daily aggregation that tell me all the device inefficiencies that are there. Tell me the average temperatures across a device across a particular region or give me a real-time view of how many sensors are really failing. These are probably right questions to ask if you were an IoT company. So these are only the business questions. Now the operational question is how I'm going to scale this from uh, a million sensors to tomorrow if I go and become really popular, a billion sensors. How do I manage high availability? How do I manage less management overhead and only pay for what I need? So what we'll take, we'll take the concept that we've just talked about and build an architecture around this. All right, so I have this data. What I can do is push this into something like a firehose, and that data can land in directly into S3. There can be some buffering of the data that allows me to create bigger files, and then I can easily query them on Athena. 
It's very, then, so immediately, I have raw access to the data that I need. So the way to do it would be uh, create a delivery stream on Kinesis. You, you call whatever you want to call the delivery stream. You, you, you denote it with an S3 prefix. Here's where I want the data to be loaded and used. There's some other configuration items. For example, if you wanted to do transformation on the data, you can hook up a Lambda function to it. Let's say you don't like the way the timestamp comes out of the sensor data, you can change that. Uh, there's also some uh, uh, interesting advanced things that you can do with, uh, with Kinesis Stream, like you can back it up to a different stream. You can also buffer this data for, uh, for I think, 128 megabytes, if not wrong. If not, not wrong. Uh, and then it gets pushed onto S3. So once you have pushed this into uh, once you have pushed this into S3, uh, you can either use a crawler that will automatically crawl the schema of this data because this data is in raw JSON, and I can crawl JSON, I can figure out the schema, and then you can write or you can also directly write a DDL statement, a create table statement that will create a table, and that's it. You can start uh, you can start querying querying the data, the raw data as it arrives from Kinesis Firehose onto S3 in its rawest format. So now I have a data in a, I have data in S3. I have Athena creating a table. I can run these queries. That's great. Now, uh, so if I wanted to say, tell me all the information about this particular sensor across a period of time, that could be a simple query on this raw data set. Now my second question was, I want daily aggregations. Now I can take this raw data set and I can add a glue-based event pipeline that allows me to ETL this data and create an hourly aggregate of this data and put it in as a new different table on S3. So if you look at my diagram, I have tables. It doesn't have a pointer. I have, a, I have tables. The raw time series is my raw data. When I aggregate the data, it becomes a daily average table. That's a completely different S3 prefix. And I can query the data as well in Athena. It's just a different table. Right? If you take out a glue job, a glue job is a very simple way of, of doing this. You take this data set. You aggregate it, you run a SQL query, and now you can run this every hour. There is no ser service to manage, and it's simple PySpark script. So I've done this. Now I can done this cool icon, right? Last minute addition. Only thing I could find. So um, uh, what I can do is done, run this on a schedule. That means uh, run it every hour so that my daily aggregations are here in an hour. Partition it also based upon a uh, daily average. Now I aut automatically have a daily aggregation of this data. Now, if I wanted to do the real-time stuff, what I could do is hook Kinesis Firehose to something like Kinesis Analytics, and there, Kinesis Firehose can give, uh, the analytics can give me, give me a daily inefficiency count and push this into S3. So now I have a table that gives me a real-time view of what the daily efficiency was. I can also build a dashboard on top of, uh, on top of this. Now, so for example, uh, if I wanted to go to my raw table and get Events by device ID. I can get, so I have three different tables now, a raw table, a daily aggregation table, and a, a real-time table. So when I query the raw table, I can get information like this. Give me the events by device ID. Give me the top 20 devices. When I query the daily aggregation, I can say, give me a KPI, like give me a daily overall efficiency of the device. Or I can go to the result table, and I can run a simple query like top 10 most inefficient devices that I'm seeing on a per second or a per hour basis. This is what the whole architecture looks like. One of the things that you might have noticed about this architecture, that it can scale from hundreds to thousands. It, can, it has virtually infinite storage scalability. It has real-time and batch processing there, because we had a real-time table, a batch table, a raw table, 
We have interactive queries that can run on this table, and you only pay for what you need. And all of this can be done without actually managing a single server across this infrastructure. Now, if you wanted to do this today, you could do this today. If you go to the AWS Big Data blog and search for Unite Real and Batch Time Analytics, there's a cloud formation script that will take this raw data that, that has a data generator, like the IoT sensor data that simulates it, and has a cloud formation template that will set this entire architecture up for you, including the crawling, including this. So from zero to nothing, you have built an architecture that not only allows you to do uh, a batch, it also allows you to do real time, and allows you to build this on, on, on this, uh, allows you to build it on S3. So that's probably a very simple example of how uh, you would want to build a data lake. Now to talk about a lot more complex example and a lot more enterprise use case, let's, uh, uh, let me invite Rohan. Thanks, Abhishek. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I'm uh, Rowan Depelia. I'm the uh, analytics platform manager of Atlassian. And I've been with the company for about three years now. And I manage a team there of uh, awesome data engineers and full stack developers. And together, we've driven some awesome changes to Atlassian's data landscape. Uh, so today, I'll be talking about uh, Atlassian's data lake, uh, how we handle some of the, cross, uh, the core components of the lake and drive a self-serve, zero-friction approach to managing the lake, as well as some of the challenges we've faced along the way. I'll start with a bit of an introduction into what Atlassian is. I don't know if everyone here is aware of what Atlassian is, but uh, we make software that helps teams of all sizes organize, discuss, and complete their work uh, by providing a shared open platform and tools that take advantage of that platform. Tools like uh, Jira software for project and uh, for project issue and planning, uh, Stride, our newest product, a team messaging and communications tool, Trello, which helps individuals and teams organize and prioritize their work, as well as our Confluence and Bitbucket. Uh, our data lake is pretty young. It's uh, only going on two years, and that's been very much to our advantage. We've been able to, uh, to really learn from others in the industry and, and make some, some good decisions up front. Uh, even though it's so young, it's been widely adopted in the company, uh, and it's become pretty much the single source of analytics for, for Atlassian. Uh, we call our data lake Socrates, uh, and the name stuck pretty well so far. Uh, it's named in, in reference to the Socratic method, uh, a means of cooperative argumentative dialogue between individuals based on asking and answering questions to stimulate critical thinking. And we kind of hope that our platform allows our users to do the same thing, essentially ask more and more questions to get down to the real deep answers. Uh, to give you an idea of scale, uh, we have plus of 500 uh, terabytes of data in binary compressed uh, format available for access on S3. Uh, we ingest over 1 billion events every day um, we have w around 100 in integrations into the lake, and we have uh, 1,000 weekly active users uh, of about 2,000 plus, somewhere around 2,000 uh, employees at Alassian. So it's mostly internal, internal um, uh, analysts and whatnot. Uh, the data lake is managed by the analytics platform team, a subset of the data engineering team, and there are about nine developers. And we split our focus across these four pillars here, I've highlighted in blue. Uh, there's ingest, which is how can we get data into the data lake in a low friction, low maintenance way. 
There's prepare, which is like, how do we really add value to the data by modeling it, aggregating it, and deriving information out of it? There's organize, which is how can we ensure data is uh, secure, but also structured to scale? And lastly, there's discover, which is like, how can we enable our users to find, understand, and visualize data without having to ask a data engineer for assistance? So in the following slides, I'll talk about how AWS's offerings have helped us move up the value chain in each of these pillars and allowed us to focus on providing greater value to our customers elsewhere, starting with ingest. So we consider this to be one of the key pillars of the data lake. Uh, our goal here is to make the ma ma management as low friction as possible. Uh, the less time that uh, I believe, the less time that my, my team and other Atlassian teams can spend focused on getting data into the lake, the more time we can spend focusing on, on adding value elsewhere. So some of the challenges we've had up to now, I guess to give you an idea, like uh, up until now we've always been doing like pool-based ingestion. Um, so the challenges I'm speaking about here are mostly centered around that. Uh, when we started our data lake, we were aiming to, for a quick minimum viable product and we really wanted to prove value fast. So we decided to go to each individual system and extract data by whatever means is necessary. Um, but this led to a few problems. We had very brittle pipelines uh, in that sourcing systems would change, either the data model or the API, uh, and, or, or they would have downtime when we're trying to extract. And this was quite problematic for us. Uh, there was complex interfaces in that like, my team had to understand various technologies like uh, like various sourcing system technologies and how to actually connect to those sourcing systems. Um, and it was just made it harder for me to hire people and harder, harder for us to train up new, newbies as well. Uh, and lastly, uh, the pipelines were disruptive on sourcing system teams. So like, you know, our, our pool based extracts would be like a performance hit for them. And like it will cause all sorts of failures and down, downtime on their side as well. These problems combined started to discourage potential data producers from actually contributing to our data lake and, and caused a high barrier of entry as often they would have to wait for our team to help them get the data onto the platform as opposed to being able to self-serve and do it themselves. So a quick glimpse into our ingestion journey up until now. Uh, when we started our data lake, we were only pulling data from our web assets, our billing and CRM systems and our products. And this essentially provided us, or provided analysts with uh, visibility from the moment there was a click on a website uh, to when a product was purchased and through to like analytics around the behavior of our users, uh, of our users in product as well. And this like really just helped generate some people actually using the data lake to begin with. Uh, we then started to like, uh, by, by early 2016, we saw an explosion of microservices released across Atlassian. And uh, Socrates was also proving to be a very successful uh, platform. Uh, within the company with more people wanting to take advantage of its offerings. Uh, we continue to help teams onboard their data by whatever means necessary, uh, and we tried to accommodate for any means of integration, really. But this led to a multitude of, in this multitude of interfacing technologies uh, started to lead to like a, a series of problems, and it really took a toll on the team. Uh, we began to see reliability issues with numerous extracts failing daily, and like probably, you know, 20 or 30% of them would fail every day. Uh, so later in 2016, uh, Stream, we, uh, another Atlassian team released a platform called StreamHub, which was uh, an enterprise bus, this, this awesome little cylinder here. 
And producers could essentially send data to a single endpoint and consumers could subscribe to events without having to worry about the complications of sourcing systems. So we started to see our sourcing systems had already started to push events to StreamHub and microservices and enterprise systems had started to subscribe to those events as well. So we saw this as a good opportunity for us to subscribe as well and take advantage of this vast amount of data that was available there. So what is StreamHub? Essentially, it's an event-driven architecture, um, which means essentially uh, different producers could uh, integrate with the platform in different ways, and downstream systems wouldn't even know how or care. Um, and secondly, it has a schema registration, which means uh, messages sent to StreamHub were pre-validated to a contract, and we had a schema available telling us how to um, read and materialize those events in our data lake. I'll just drive into, uh, walk into like how, how it's kind of architected, StreamHub specifically. Um, so its implementation uh, is mostly on a microservice architecture built on EC2. Uh, the journey for a publisher starts with the schema service down the bottom, um, whereby a publisher can register a JSON schema uh, for the event they tend to send to the service. And schema registration, like they, they, it's, it's quite self-service. Basically, they just submit a pull request to the service and you know, upload the schema. Uh, the API is the gateway for publishers to submit events. And it's at this stage that we also authenticate the publisher and we validate the event against the schema service. Once the publisher's events have been validated and authenticated, they're sent through to a Kinesis stream. And then there are two things that kind of happen here. One is a subscriber would register their intent to uh, consume that message. Uh, they would do this by creating a regular expression predicate and submitting it to the uh, schema service. Uh, and then the second thing that would happen would be a demuxing service would take these events off the Kinesis stream and uh, decide which subscriber needs those events based on the regex predicate and then fire it off essentially to whichever subscriber it is. At the moment, it currently supports uh, SQS and Kinesis as consumers. So the StreamUp service uh, maintains a contract with its publishers and subscribers. Uh, they try and maintain a 99.95% uptime SLA, which is uh, less than 20, 21.5 minutes downtime per month. 99.95% uh, success rate, so one in every 2,000 calls fail. Um, and a 500 millisecond latency between when the event is uh, arrives at the API to when it's actually sent to the consumer. Uh, and and they, they also offer a one, at least once guarantee here. So then, how do we land this data in Socrates, our data lake? Uh, it wasn't as easy as setting up a fire hose and landing the events. Uh, what, we, like, what, what a fire hose would do, I guess, would, uh, would consume one stream of events and, and land those events in one location in, uh, in our data lake. But what we wanted to do was consume one stream of events of multiple event types from multiple publishers and land those events as multiple tables in our data lake. So varying tables based on like the sourcing system and the event type. Um, on top of this, we want to ensure that we could do things like mask PII uh, for any events that are coming through on the pipe and that we could uh, land the data in a format that's easy to consume, that's parquet formatted, snappy compressed, and, uh, and not just JSON strings, like so a columnar format, essentially. Uh, so we built a data landing framework. 
And what this framework does is essentially it takes uh, events off the Kinesis stream using a lambda uh, and lands these events in S3 as raw JSON. Uh, the files in S3 are stored as compressed JSON in parts that are based on the event type and the date of the event. And it's now we could start exposing these events in, um, in, in our data lake in Socrates, but they would, be, uh, they would be very difficult for our users to consume still as they still are in JSON. Um, and they're not stored in a columnar format that would work best with our query engines. So the next phase of processing takes these, land, these landed events and using Spark structured streaming, uh, we re-land these events in Parquet format and snappy compressed. We use the schema enricher service to uh, basically read the JSON schema that we get from StreamHub and uh, determine the, the structure of the Parquet files as well. Uh, and we also allow for like, things like uh, enrichments here. So we can, uh, you can mask particular fields if you want to, or you can, uh, you can do custom partitioning or whatever you need to do there as well. And it's at this stage as well that we also expose the data to it in our data lake. So now that it's in Parquet format, we can expose in our data lake. Essentially, it starts to look a bit like this now. So you have the data in Parquet format. It's, uh, and you can see that we also have uh, uh, custom partitions here too. So while the events at this stage would be uh, uh, consumable, they still wouldn't be performant enough. We still have the problem of having thousands of small files in every partition. And, and like this will be problematic still for our analytical engines. Um, like that the Spark, uh, the data, data optimizer uh, Spark job uh, runs every five minutes. So you know, you're just gonna get like a, a new file every five minutes essentially. So what we've done is we've created one last step. One last step, there you go. Uh, and to, like, it, it's basically uh, a daily compaction job. And all it does is it takes the small files in each partition and concatenates them together. And then on top of that, we'll just basically alter the partition so uh, from the, the unconcatenated uh, path to like the now, the, the new path that we created with now the concatenated data. And this starts to look just like this, like basically one file in every, every um, path, every uh, partition, as opposed to having many thousands of files. So this is the entire uh, landing framework for, uh, uh, so far. In the future, there's a few things we would like to do. For one, we would like to remove the landing bucket that we have here and have the data optimizer step read straight from the kinesis. Uh, the second thing we'd like to do, ideally, is eventually just replace this data optimizer step entirely, if and when we get things like a parquet reading, uh, probably from Firehose or something like that, and just get rid of it all entirely. At this stage, we can't really do that, though. So moving on, uh, prepare. Prepare. Uh, so we talked about the importance of ingest and how, how, how to reduce fiction there. But still, the, the true value really comes once you can aggregate de or derive more meaning out of data that's been landed in the lake. So without providing an easier service in this area, like we're, we're basically forcing our, our, da our data analysts and our data scientists to, to learn complex big data technologies. And that's not really what we're here to do. Uh, so in this section, I'll walk through some of the challenges we've faced and how we've tackled each of those challenges. So in the two years we've been running our data lake, uh, the following challenges have become quite apparent. One is that there is a data engineering bottleneck, uh, by which I mean data analysts and data scientists and other data consumers uh, are typically heavily reliant on data engineering. 
and they need help to do things like create tables, uh, scheduling them or knowing how they run. Uh, the second thing is uh, cluster management is an issue for us. Uh, particularly you have a cluster running multiple jobs on it and if you want to, it's, it's very difficult to attribute costs back to, to, to clusters, uh, back to jobs I mean. Uh, and it's also uh, quite problematic to try and upgrade clusters. So, so if you have a cluster with 100 jobs running on it and you want to upgrade it but 10% of those jobs fail, you'll be in a state where you have to kind of run two clusters side by side for a period of time and that's quite expensive. And lastly, reinventing the wheel, by which I mean uh, data engineers spend a lot of time solving solved problems. Uh, things like how do I land data in S3? How do I do incremental loads of data? Uh, and how do I do incremental loads of data where I want to reload a few days of data every day? Like I, I can't really do updates. And what I see is that data engineers can solve these problems, but like across the data engineering teams at Atlassian, everyone has a different way of solving these problems. And it's, uh, there's, no, there's no similarity. There's no like, uh, same, same ways of doing these things. So what we provide in the data lake is raw and unaltered uh, data, but the true value comes from the, the, the uh, prepared and transformed data. Things like dimensional models, whereby we can uh, re properly report on business processes against uh, conformed, transform, uh, conformed uh, dimensions and attributes, uh, aggregated and derived views that we can use to push onto reporting tools like Tableau or, or just make it easier for users to query and understand data and uh, user-defined extracts that our users will use for machine learning models or for a particular notebook or some analysis that they're working on. So given the cluster management challenges I talked about earlier, uh, we've moved to a model of having job scope clusters. Uh, this means that we dedicate one short living cluster for every job um, and we shut it down essentially after the job is complete. So spin it up, run your job, shut it down. And and we use Airbnb's uh, open-sourced Airflow to manage the spin-up and shutdown of that. So there are great benefits to, there are many benefits to job scope clusters, but I'll just list a few of them. For one, uh, you can actually now like, uh, understand the cost per entity and job, or job, and take advantage of things like per second billing in uh, EMR. And you can also account, uh, like charge back to, to your customers if you wanted to, like your analysts. Like, you can say you're using 20 bucks worth of compute every, every month or whatever. Uh, you can upscale clusters for particular jobs that are more resource intensive. And you can uh, take advantage of later versions of EMR, Spark, Hive faster uh, by just upgrading everything and keeping problematic ones like quarantines on an older version of, of EMR. So this is an example of a typical DAG, a directed acrylic graph that we have in Airflow. Um, and the beauty of DAGs is uh, they give you predefined steps and you can build predefined steps and standard actions that we can use across all DAGs. And so this kind of helps us stop from reinventing the wheel. We can, we can reuse things that, uh, across all our DAGs and across our whole data engineering org. In this DAG, we're doing a few things. So we're basically spinning up a cluster, uh, running a particular transformation, and then copying the, uh, the logs across for debugging to S3 in, in case anything happens, and then shutting down that cluster afterwards. So we kind of solved job scopes, uh, EMR clusters. We've solved, we, can, we can avoid reinventing the wheel by using things like DAGs with predefined steps, but we haven't really solved the data engineering bottleneck yet. 
users still uh, need, like, need help creating uh, aggregated and derived views. And to solve this, we created TAS, uh, Transformation as a Service. And I guess like, it's, it's, like, this is us trying to move up the value chain a little bit in, our, in my team. Um, so this allows our users to self-serve. And it's, pretty much, it's almost pretty much uh, zero friction with our team at this stage. And all it is is just a, a UI where, uh, where you can basically submit a, a Spark SQL statement. And um, in the future, we're looking to do something like add a CLI as well, where, whereby you can like, you know, then like use it in a build plan or like a, a continuous deployment sort of thing. It expect, yeah, like I said, it accepts a Spark SQL. You can do things like, um, uh, like date parameters for incremental loads as well. And uh, users can run ad hoc kind of uh, like a create table as select statement, or they can do things like uh, schedule their transformations at varying frequencies, be it daily, weekly, monthly, or whatever. Uh, behind the scenes, we're still doing the same things. So we're still creating DAGs and ephemeral clusters. And so far, the service has been pretty good. Uh, in the three months since we've launched it, we have around 75 uh, scheduled transformations. So moving on, this is the third pillar, uh, organize. So how do we structure secu and secure our data? How do we ensure the right people have the right access? Like this was pretty easy to do in like an RDBMS world, but it's, it's proving to be a lot harder in a big data world. And how do we enable self-service and provision areas for people to work freely? The challenges we have with organizing are one, uh, teams want flexibility. Uh, they, they, they want to structure their work in, a, in uh, their work in a way that's meaningful to them. And they don't want us to, to dictate how entities are named or how, how they should structure their spaces. Uh, security, how can we ensure that our data is secure on land and still enable our users and their teams to, uh, team members to access what they need to do easily? And lastly, categorizing data. How do we structure our data lake so it will scale? So I'll start with uh, categorizing. And in our data lake, we essentially have four, four areas. We have the landed, which is not exposed to our users. Uh, not performant for query engines, and, but we, we keep it around just in case we need to replay any ETL. Uh, we have raw, which is partitioned and optimized data, uh, usually columnar formatted. Uh, we mask any sensitive data here, and uh, we expose in our data lake at this stage as well. And we have modeled, which is certified and conformed um, entities. Uh, typically entities that have been built and maintained by the data engineering team and are usually entities that contain like uh, critical business metrics or core referential data that, that um, is used by many users across the company. And lastly, we have self-service, which is like uh, a space where we can, uh, teams can build their own entities, upload their own data, or perform a transformation on some of the raw data that we've provided. So I'll talk about how we kind of uh, uh, promote self-service. Uh, so we, we, we use our Jira service desk, a little plug there, and, um, and basically you can request a new schema. Uh, and we, we do act a bit as a gatekeeper here. Uh, and we, we, do, like, we don't want to have too many schemas in our data lake, but what we do do is like, um, try and limit them to be like, uh, at a, a team level or at an organization, uh, a departmental level at most. Um, when a user requests a self-service schema, a few things happen. One is we provision an S3 bucket for them. And we tag it to the user and the, 
we tag it to their business unit as well so we can charge it back. Uh, we create a schema in our meta stores and we create an active directory group whereby they can maintain control and access to their buckets themselves. Uh, we call these schemas zones. We used to call them playgrounds in the past, but they were, we found that uh, um, people started to use them quite a lot for production loads, so zones was a bit more of a generic word that we could use for anything. Um, and we use Vault to control access rights. And Vault is essentially an open source tool. It's designed to manage secrets. Uh, it creates a temporary IAM user with like a, a two-hour lifespan and passes those credentials onto the user. Um, so this is pretty much how it works. So a user would sign in with their LDAP authentication. Uh, they pick the policy that they want to use. So in this example, we have like a zone marketing write and a zone marketing read. And then they can read those credentials for that policy. Uh, they can then use it for whatever they want, really. So in this example, uh, they're basically listing an S3 bucket and then uploading files to that S3 bucket. So this is, uh, I think that's it for that one. Oh, wait, did I, go, did I miss a slide? No, yep. Okay. Uh, so that's pretty much it for um, that, that pillar. Moving on, this is Discover. This is our probably the most neglected pillar in our data lake so far. Up until recent months, we believed that the other three pillars were of, of higher criticality and more important before we could really have a look at this. Uh, here we try to enable our users to find what they need, uh, to understand it, and to be able to deep dive and find insights without having to interact with the data engineering team. Uh, the core challenges we have here are that teams want options. Uh, we can't just offer one visualization tool and, and say we're done. Uh, different tools have different pros and cons, and we need to provide as much flexibility as we can here. Secondly, managing query engines is time consuming. Uh, query engines are the, the main way that analysts interact with the platform, but they also uh, take a lot of time to get running right. And lastly, finding data is hard. We have over 3,000 tables in Socrates, and it's difficult for like a newbie or like a well-seasoned analyst to find data in the lake. So this is kind of a, a, all our data stored in S3. This is like, that's our storage area. And the beauty of that is that we can spin up any type of compute that we want uh, to access it. So this gives us flexibility and tools that we choose. So for example, if Tableau doesn't really work very well with Presto on EMR, we can easily switch it out for something like Spark or Hive on EMR as well. Um, and it also, um, another thing, like it gives us flexibility to make significant changes. So at the beginning of this year, we decided to stop using Presto and move to Athena. Um, I'll go into the reasons for why I've done this a bit later on. But the point here is that the change was really simple to do. Uh, we didn't have to like, uh, migrate data anywhere around. It's all based in S3, so it's just a matter of pointing, uh, like uh, getting the, like the uh, metastate, metadata up into Athena to make it work. In recent months, we've also looked at dropping our self-serve, uh, self-managed uh, IDS Hive Metastore in favor of the Glue Metastore. And this is just basically a way that we, like, we're trying to simplify our architecture as much as we can. So before we had Presto, we had several issues, uh, mostly due to our own poor management of the cluster. We, just, we, we would rather spend our time doing other things rather than managing a Presto cluster. Uh, so we had queries failing all over the place, and on top of this, we had a hard time of uh, 
enabling like a, a table level security. Uh, there was some work being done by the open source community to, to enable this, but um, we were having a hard time implementing this in our ecosystem. So we implemented Athena, which gave us uh, the ability to attribute cost to our users, uh, less infrastructure to manage, so the team could spend more time doing more value add stuff. And we don't have to pay for what we don't use. So if there's no queries running on the weekend, we don't have to pay for it. Um, and also it uses S3 level bucket security policies. So we don't need to worry about enabling authorization at the query engine layer. But there are challenges with Athena. Um, we were an early adopter. Uh, so we, start, we started migrating to Athena as soon as it went GA. And we hit a number of hurdles and teething issues in the service, service along the way. For one thing, there wasn't parity with Presto. Uh, they, were both, they were both running on the same tech, but there were still some functions and some features that weren't working in Presto that, um, that weren't working in Athena that worked, that worked in Presto. So we had to keep both clusters up and running, or we had to keep Presto up and running for a period of time while we had Athena up. Um, secondly, there's no AD authentication. And by which I mean, like, there's IAM users and roles to authenticate with, but this is not really, uh, this, will, this will work for lots of companies. It didn't really work for us. We would much prefer to have our own AD authentication in front of Athena. So what we have built here is a proxy in front of Athena that just basically accepts AD authentication and converts it to like an IAM user on the other side. And lastly, cost management. Uh, in the time since we've been using Athena, we've been hit a few times by this, whereby we haven't really been paying attention for, uh, for a while, and then the end of the month comes and we get this surprisingly large bill. Um, and it's, it's usually just because a, a user's been querying it and it's been a too uh, high a frequency, and like, there's a, a bit of monitoring lacking at the moment. I'm sure it will improve in time, but at the moment it's a bit lacking. Um, so how, how, however, overall, at the moment we feel like the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs and the challenges. And Athena is likely to improve and, and, and probably surpass anything that we can do with Presto. So we provide a number of uh, visualization tools as well. The four that we provide are primarily Tableau, uh, which we use for uh, exploration on core data sets and corporate dashboards. Uh, Rshiny are used for web apps and mostly for quick, uh, sorry, uh, and for very niche requirements. Uh, Web uh, Zeppelin Notebooks, which is like uh, we run in um, EMR. Uh, it's a web-based notebooks, uh, usually for quick analysis in Python and Spark. And lastly, Redash. This has been one of our probably most successful ones. Uh, and in that, it feels very similar to like a, 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 a client uh, a database visualization uh, exploration tool. Um, in that, you, you can just run any kind of query you want, get the results quickly. Uh, get a visualization up and schedule it to run whenever you want. It's quite cool. Uh, and, but like, just because we offer these four tools doesn't mean we don't stop for people from bringing their own. Like, uh, we want to provide as much flexibility as we can. Uh, we just manage these at, at, at the moment. And li lastly, in an effort to kind of solve the whole data discovery problem, we've built a search functionality on top of our data portal. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's still a work in progress, but the idea here is that like, um, like, uh, what we, where we want to get to is like a community of analysts and data scientists will con contribute to this data catalog and to make it easier for others in the community to, to find data better and understand data better without having to reach out to us.
So that's pretty much it. Um, in the future, uh, sorry, key takeaways uh, uh, that I hope I've kind of shared amongst this is uh, um, one is that AWS helps you move up the value chain. Uh, they provide services for things that are becoming uh, commodity and utility. Uh, for example, Kinesis versus running, versus running your own Kafka cluster, or Athena versus running your own uh, EMR Presto cluster. Um, and this has helped us spend less time maintaining things and more time focusing on adding value elsewhere. And secondly, it's not all that easy. You can't just spin up a Kinesis stream, a firehose, and have an instant data lake. You often have to build services around these things to make them work for you. Um, and and like, I guess that's when you have to start thinking about like, how can you make these things scale, and how can you add flexibility. So that's it. Uh, thank you. I hope there were some takeaways in this for you. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about what we're doing, you can reach out to me afterwards. We can have a chat now. And otherwise, you can catch me on LinkedIn. Thanks. And thanks, Abhishek. We can take questions if you guys have any. Uh, nine developers in the like the analytics platform team. Uh, it's like a mixture at the moment. So we have like a, we have data engineers, but we've also most recently been hiring uh, full stack developers to kind of build like UIs and some of the, the applications around. Uh, about yeah, like I said, like two years. So we started off, uh, yeah, about two years ago, pretty much to the day. Uh, sorry. Yeah, we did. We still do. We still have some, some clusters that do run with Yarn. But the beauty of uh, uh, EMR and job scope clusters is, is mostly the chargeback. That's like what I'm most interested in. So like being able to charge back those costs to our departments and things like that. Yeah, yeah, we, we like we do a bit of both. So so sometimes we use Yarn, sometimes we use job scope, yeah. Um so in the past we were mostly doing like extracts uh, via via JDBC. Okay. So we'll hit we'll hit the, their um RDBMS databases and extract. Uh, we're moving more towards event-driven, so yeah, so whereby they would fire in events whenever something happens in their system. I guess, uh, let, me, let me think of, so like our aim is to have one pipe in, like uh, one, one means of ingestion. So like you could have like a, like the idea of using StreamHub, like that enterprise bus, was that uh, it's already well established. Um, and we could have, uh, then we just have the one, the one link to worry about and it's like just less maintenance.
yep, yep. Yeah. Now you only have not just one stream, you have one system talking to the stream bus directly yeah. because you've already taken and extracted all that yeah. from internal. Yeah. So you're saying if you had like something like MuleSoft already as your enterprise bus, <laughs> then you would just use that, I guess, and you would just ingest from that, and that will be your enterprise MuleSoft bus. Yeah, you would probably not do the, the, the middle step then, right? You would just have your, your MuleSoft enterprise bus, and you have some means of ingestion into your data lake from that one thing. Mm. Anyone else? Um, yeah? So, you talked about your architecture where data goes through a lot of feature processes. There's Lambda, there's Front, streaming, and all. How do you manage that so that that's going to have to be changes and you have to track over all the processes that are meshing? Okay, good question. So if, if an attribute changes, how do we manage that change? So uh, with uh, StreamHub, they do, uh, uh, the schemas are registered, but they're registered against, uh, like they, they have a versioning in the registry. So if, if, a, if a new, uh, if a breaking change happens to that event, uh, they register an entirely new schema with a new version. And what we do is we basically land that as a separate table in Socrates. So, so uh, the breaking change won't affect the, the previous event plus version, but it will like, basically build a new table. And then what we're hoping to do in the future is have like views and Athena over the top of that, which kind of combines uh, those multiple uh, schema versions for that one particular event type. Catalog also does the same thing. You, you would have to create versions anytime you see any kind of attribute uh, mutation, uh, because otherwise the underlying engine will just be uh, not have it might just have wrong data, mm. so you have to create versions. Yeah, and also the question was, you know, there's a lot of data transformation already sitting in Lambda, sitting in streaming, and all this, and how do you maintain that? Like, how do you know where's all like one attribute gets transformed by so many processes? So we try and keep the transformations. Like we try and keep the data as raw and untouched in all those places. So like the lambda is not actually doing anything other than just like splitting the field, the, the files out. So we're not actually doing anything. We're not actually modifying the context of that file at any stage. It's only in the, the data optimizer stage that I showed you that, that that's where the only place we're actually where we're, we're actually doing any sort of transformation. So keep it like narrowed. Um, well, thank you for the presentation. It's Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. The question, the question is, uh, have you ever had uh, data that's encrypted coming through, and how did you deal with it? Uh, we are looking at how we're going to do that. At this stage, no, we haven't. We haven't had any encrypted data. Yet. Where Where are your keys? Say it again. Where are your keys for the encrypted decrypted data? The key is. Um, is it on KMS? Is it on HSM? Yeah, so with S3, uh, if you have, you can encrypt using either your own encryption or client-side encryption and put the keys in KMS. Yes. And then you can have individual users who could have uh, different keys for different prefixes. So if I'm user A and I only have access to data in a certain prefix or a certain, let's say, directory, uh, I only get access to a certain key that can decrypt that data. I don't get access to all the other keys. So uh, that's one way, one way of doing it. Uh, that you provide permissioning on the key level itself and change, uh, and as your data classification changes, encrypt them using different keys. I guess you, you still have to add the, the extra step for decrypting to get transformed. Generally, uh, you would use something like uh, Spark, uh, understands this, 
uh, Athena understands this, Hive understands this. Uh, all these systems have a way in which they can fill out a key and decrypt the data when they're using, uh, when they're processing on S3. All of them support client-side encryption with keys in KMS. Yep. Say you have 75 jobs. Yep. Do you make any attempt to run jobs that are scheduled for the same time on the same cluster? Or do you see them as one to one? So we, uh, we, uh, like, uh, we basically could set a limit on the cluster that we're running at, at the moment. Um, like, uh, we are trying to move to a stage. Like, I guess what happens is they get, kind of get queued up a little bit. Um, so we're not really, at the moment, they're not entirely job scope clusters at the moment behind uh, TAS. It's uh, mostly uh, one big cluster and we have multiple jobs or so we're moving towards like job scope clusters and then it wouldn't really be a problem for us regardless, right? If uh, you have multiple jobs just spinning up, we just spin up more and more nodes. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I did a kind of uh, elaborate, uh, explain there a little bit that we are trying to move towards the Glue Metastore. So yeah, we have got both up and running at the moment. We're in the stage of like shutting, like uh, with all our email clusters. I think Presto is the only one that doesn't actually work with Glue. Last week it started. Oh, right, there you go. So now I think we can probably do it for everything. Yeah. Mm. So when we released, it was only Hive and Spark. But last week we released like EMR, Presto running on top oh. of EMR with Hive and Store. Yep. Okay. I think we're almost out of time. Yep. Go on, sorry. You mentioned you had two stages of the Firefox telekinesis, which yeah. was the optimizing and the compaction. Mm -hmm. So two questions related to that. Um, do you do some sort of auto scaling for the EMR clusters that will transform the data and compact it? Like depending on the volume of the kinesis stream, how do you monitor that? Do you have, uh, like, an yeah, at the moment with the Kinesis stream, we've just over provisioned the Kinesis stream, so we haven't got any sort of scaling there. Um, with the cluster as well, uh, we just we've just over provisioned, but we will look at probably doing something there too. Have you considered using uh, glue for that? Uh, for for that part, not so much, no. But we have looked at using glue for some of the preparation work that we're looking at doing. The, so uh, let me answer that because you used to do product on EMR as well. Um, uh, with EMR auto scaling, I think it's it's probably much easier if you did the scale up based upon your CPU load, which will be a function of let's say you have a giant feed coming out of Kinesis. So let's say uh, after one hour you see that your CPU load is still sustainably at seventy percent or eighty percent, then you can scale out the cluster uh, uh, to get your job done. And with per second billing, you can actually aggressively scale it out. So instead of trying to do it on the kinesis uh, as to how quickly the stream is coming and monitoring them in CloudWatch and then calling the EMR cluster, you might actually just do it in there. Because what that will also do is it will also help you with skews. Right? If your data is awfully skewed, uh, um, and but it's not that you're getting a higher volume out of kinesis, but it is awfully skewed, your aggregations will take a longer time. Right? So that can actually help if you just do it on the CPU. Nope. Thank you, guys.